Welcome back to another episode of the Frio Music Podcast. I am your host, Michael Morahan. In this episode, I sit down with Dave Watts, the drummer and lead percussionist for the Motet. Dave started the band over two decades ago, and they are still crushing it. They have a show where they're headlining at Red Rocks this summer with a stacked lineup, including them. So check that out. Stay tuned for some more details. In this episode, Dave shed some light on how he's able to keep a band going for so long. And not only that, but how to stay at the peak of your musical abilities. He talks about managing your energy over the duration of a long tour and really some strategic insights that he's gained from his experience over the last two decades in the music industry. So hope you enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. This is Dave Watts from the Motet. So, Dave, thanks so much for having me over. Yeah, Mike. Appreciate it. Of course. Let's go back to your early childhood. When did you first start up picking up the drums? Oh, man. It's like pots and pans story. Yeah. The usual drummer thing. Yeah, in the kitchen, in the living room. The bathroom, everywhere. I would drive my parents crazy, you know. Uh, chopsticks on a Quaker Oats, you know, box, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, checking out the Beatles, classic rock groups, being inspired to be a drummer just because it's something different to do, you know. Uh, very different than my family. I was kind of the black sheep. But, uh, you know, I just did the, the usual, like, middle school concert band actually failed <laughs> and my uh, sticks taken away from me miss oh, mckenzie what? took my sticks man for what you uh do? just fucking off you know how it is yeah throwing things you know being dumb not paying attention <laughs> some things never change yeah that's great. uh but i showed her yeah no kidding right um and then you know played in a rock band in high school i was like 15 playing with these 30-year-olds. That's a big age difference. Yeah, yeah. He was like picking me up in his Trans Am, lead singer, (laughs) taking me to practice. We practiced in the basement of of a pet store. Wow. You know, and I just remember every time I finished a song, we'd hear all these dogs like barking and shit. I'd be like, wow, I guess that's a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they're cheering us on. Exactly. What band was that? Uh... (laughs) That band was called Driver. Driver. You've never heard of us, I'm sure. Yeah, it was like upstate New York classic rock cover band. Dirty, just the kind of scene that like you don't want to like, you know, stay in too long. So by the time I got out of high school, I was like, get me out of this town, you know. I uh, moved to Boston. I had family that lived there, so I had a little experience in Boston. I uh, went to Boston University for a year. And um, and then would walk over to Berkeley and see the guys playing over there, playing drums, you know, till midnight in the rehearsal rooms. And was just completely jealous and realized that, you know, that was my calling. 
So ended up transferring to Berkeley. Cool. And yeah. that was, what age was that when you transferred? Uh, I was probably 17, 18. I, I was in college a little bit early, so might have been 17. Great. Yeah. And so you knew then that that was your calling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point, it was like no looking back, right? You know, it's like if I'm going to go to college for, for jazz, then, you know, it's not like I'm going to decide to switch my career after I graduate because that degree is not going to do me any good. It's not like the degree does you any good anyway. It's more about experience, you know, and networking and connections. So that's really the, the lessons you learn in a school like that. Great. Yeah. And when was the first time that you created a band? Uh, As opposed to joining an existing yeah, one. Right, was that right, yeah. the Motet or um, did you create anything before then? I'm trying to think. I mean, little projects, but not a band that had any teeth. You know, I was in a band in Boston called Chakra, and we used to tour out here. But I, I joined that band. They were already in existence right after I graduated school. I joined that group, and then we had the means to start touring. And bands weren't really touring back then. That was the grassroots wasn't really a thing, you know. You know, back in the 80s and before, it was like you had to have a record deal to, to tour, you know. And so it was always like, well, let's work at a record deal, you know, like CBS is going to come to our show. It's a showcase gig, and they're going to come, and they are going to get signed. It's like people don't even think like that anymore. It's amazing how it's changed. Uh, but back then, if you didn't have that, that business behind you and the industry behind you, then you weren't going anywhere. You're local. So... Um, but we got, you know, literally followed in the footsteps of Fish, believe it or not. Those guys were the first band that we knew of that were just doing it themselves. And um, and what do you mean by that, doing it yourself? Oh, man. <laughs> like back in those days, literally, if you spent the time and money to create a mailing list where you got your friends together and you, and you like had a mailing list party and you put stamps and like return address, you know what I mean? On all these like postcards or even a newsletter like Fish used to do it, it meant that you really were taking it seriously and you, were, you had a leg up on the competition and you were like gonna go somewhere, you know, at least more than most people you knew because you're putting the time and energy into doing this grassroots thing, which people didn't do before that, you know? And we saw Fish doing that and it's like, oh, man, this is happening right now. There's this like way to tour where you can actually reach people, but it takes time and money. Now it's like you send out an email, you know what I mean, from your website or Facebook, and it's free to hundreds of thousands of people or whatever, and it's free. You know, like before we had to like, we had to like spend the money on the stamps to get your friends to come over. It took a long time. I mean, imagine licking 3,000 stamps, man. It's like, <laughs> that ain't easy. Uh but, like so I said, we literally saying? followed in their footsteps because yeah. we borrowed their mailing list for a tour we did to Colorado. And no one I knew of had ever been to Colorado, but because they went out here, we knew that it was some kind of scene. So we borrowed their mailing list, and we were the second band to ever, national band, to ever play the Fox back in 92. And we played the Fox. We had their mailing list. We sent out the mailer, and it sold out. 
And we did probably two and a half weeks in Colorado playing like two or three nights in every ski town. And it was the most mind blowing experience. It was just completely changed our lives and it, and it changed my whole perspective about playing music live, you know? And what were you sending to these, to the mail list? It was a postcard. On one side, it just had the return address and, and the, you know, the address that you're sending to and a stamp. And the, and show. the other side was just a printout of the shows. You know, it was that simple. Wow. I mean, we never got to a point where we were doing like a mailer, like a fold-out sheet that like had all sorts of goofy stories like Fish did. But, you know, uh, just doing that made a huge difference. And talk to me about that um, from a business side. You know, you've been in the industry for a while now. And you've seen a lot of things evolve. You know, you're talking about sending a Facebook post, which is free, versus literally sending out mailers, which is coming out of the band's pocket. Yeah. But at the same time, it's an investment in your fans, in your in your band. Yeah, yeah. So, what what are the big changes that you've noticed over the years? Well, it's just gotten easier and easier to do that. You know, Um, and we were talking about earlier. recording has gotten so much easier you know back in those days it's like book the studio time and go into the studio and then the engineer runs everything and you're sort of at the mercy of however the studio is working but it took a lot of money just to make a record not that it doesn't these days but you can do it for a lot less and you can do it yourself and you don't have to be on the clock you can be on your laptop in the basement and, and spend the time to be creative. I think there's a lot more possibility to be creative and to push the envelope with your perfection, you know? So now you can, I think it's, you know, it's, it's in some ways it's harder because you have to be, you keep up with the competition. So you have to be even more of a perfectionist about your efforts, but doing it costs less money, you know? And, and like I said, the creative potential is huge. So that's all there now for bands touring. I mean, everyone tours now. Back then, it wasn't like everyone toured. So now you, everyone can do this thing, and, and which is now you got to cut through the noise, right? Like now there's all these bands doing it. How do you get people's attention? Um, but it's just in so many ways, it's so much more satisfying now. It's uh, instant gratification. You make the song. And then you put it out and everyone hears it. You know what I mean? People know your music before you get there. Back then, it's like there was no way for people to know your music until you got there and you sold them the CD, hopefully. Then they brought it home and they played it for your friends. And the fact that they would play your music and some other people would hear it was huge. It was like a miracle. It felt like so exciting. I mean, we weren't even thinking about getting our music on the radio. We were just thinking about people hearing it at all. Now it's like everyone can hear your music instantly. So all you have to do is make it good. You know what I mean? Like that's all you have to do back then. It was like you had to make it good. Plus you had to fucking drive 3,000 miles, get on stage, impress somebody, and then sell them the disc for, you know, however much. Okay, taking a break. I gotta remember that thought. All right, so we were talking about the hustle. Um, yeah. Back in the day, you're sending out all those mailers. Yes. Yes. And nowadays is different. Yes. 
but yes. you've still got to cut through the noise, as you said. Yeah. Now, as as a musician, you know, what's your main tool to cut through the noise? Obviously, I would assume it's the music. Yeah, but it's it's the, the outlet, you know, social media. It's like if you have your fan base and they're paying attention, then then at least you have that, you know, and then the degree to which that gets shared, you know, is a little bit of a quandary. I don't exactly know how that works, you know. Um, definitely people, some people do a really good job of the visual aspect of it, you know, making videos that grab people's attention. We've never spent much time doing that, so I don't really have the knowledge about how that works or, you know, really about what, you know, you can do to improve that side of things. But that's definitely a very powerful tool, you know, these days. Well, I've seen some of your videos from Red Rocks. You've yeah. cho- chopped it up into yeah, min- yeah. minute segments. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty been, powerful. That's been definitely our best. Our Red Rock shows are definitely our best tool for grabbing people's attention online as far as the visual side of things go. And in fact, we're a live band. We're not a band like Wolfpack that does really well in the studio and is, has these creative vi- you know, studio videos. You know, we're a live band. That's where we put our energy. Uh, so th- it makes sense that that would be the case. But you know, even just Spotify is a ridiculous tool. You know, it's amazing what you can do with Spotify. Uh, you know, by far our highest um, listen to song on Spotify is it's not even really something we play live it's kind of randomly caught on to some playlist and uh, and I have no idea how to explain it so there's it's what song is that it's called Nemesis uh, and I wrote it probably seven or eight years ago it's instrumental and it does it's not really and sound anything like what we do right now but for some reason it's caught on and it's like has a life of its own so that there's like ways in which that world works that i can't quite explain but um you know like i said it, the main thing is it has to be good you know what i mean you just gotta make it good and if you make it good it's gonna like it's gonna work for you, you know? so going back to your social media being active there is super important are you individually going up on social media and posting on facebook or twitter or do you have a other members of the band or management or how, oh, yeah. how do you work that? Yeah, through the, through the Motet, yeah. Facebook and all that. Yeah, we have management and social media team and, and people that do it. I used to do it back in the day. It takes a lot of time. Yeah, it does. I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, now I can I can spend more time practicing drums and, and working on music. That's great. It's, yeah, it's great. But, you know, when I'm trying, I was just trying to think the other day when things kind of flipped for us. And I remember... Um, you know, probably like 2004, 2003, I can't remember, but around that time, you know, we were doing shows and and we kind of like had pulled back from touring a little bit, but, um, I just remember thinking like, how are people going to know we're playing this gig? And, And the only way people know is like, you had the strip ad in the newspaper and you put up flyers around town, taping them to light poles and stupid shit like that. The street and team. The street team, you know, and it works, especially in smaller towns, but that was the only way that people would find out about your show. And you had no idea if they even knew because there was no feedback, you know? Now it's like you can make posts, you can see how it's respond- people are responding to it, and 
you get a sense of how well a show's going to do, and you get you feel like at least people know the show's happening. Whether or not they're going to go, it's like, you know, it's still a crapshoot, but at least you know. So it, it, things when things started to switch, like when I got my first laptop and social media started kicking in, it's like, oh, Facebook, people are paying attention to Facebook, and you'd make a post, and all of a sudden there'd be a bunch of comments like, oh, people are paying attention. You know, it was a game changer. It really made me realize that, you know, you, if, you, if you put energy into that world, you can make a difference. And then, then it became this band to audience communication and connection. It wasn't just from the stage. It happened, you know, all week long if you wanted it to, you know. So that connection, which is huge. I mean, think of back in the day, people used to have fan clubs. The Beatles started, you know, that sort of thing, a fan club, like a way for the band to interact with the fans outside of the live show. So that all of a sudden became a huge reality once Facebook kicked in. It was first it was MySpace, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and then it was Facebook. But Facebook became a real tangible um sort of immediate way to see the interaction happen. So once that happened, I I really dug in. I think in the first like five years it was just about playing music and going around touring and having fun <clears throat> and exploring music. And then it became like, okay, if I put real time and energy into the management side of this and to the business side of it, we can actually get off, you know, sleeping on couches when we're touring, you know. And what were some of the key insights from when you pursued the business side of things? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, my first real business decision was, was deciding to call the band the motet and just having it be a name that remained the same regardless of lineup changes because i had been in so many bands that once the lineup changed the band kind of folded you know like it wasn't the same band it wasn't the same sound you know and we've changed lineups and sound over the last 20 years a bunch of times um, in kind of an organic way. But uh, I knew that at least if a brand stayed the same, the name stayed the same, we could keep building it, you know? The efforts wouldn't have to be erased afterwards. Yeah, you have to start from scratch every time. Yeah. So that was like the first effort, you know, or first good decision I made, I think, towards that. <laughs> nice. Uh, but then, um, you know, I tell a lot of... And someone asked me this the other day, like, you know, what's the best piece of advice for a young band? It's like, grow your home market. Make your home market really strong. Because what happens is bands want to tour right away, and they come home, and then their home market is just like another play, like anywhere else in the country. And it shouldn't be like that. You really should make people relate to you like you're their hometown band, like you're their band. You know, and your best chance to do that is where you live you know, for many reasons. But um, that's really crucial because you need to build capital to tour and you need to sort of recharge your batteries. When you come home, you want to have that big show. You know, I'll tell a band, like, don't put, you know, your big hometown show at the end of a tour, the last day of a tour. Like, if you're touring for three weeks and then the final Saturday is your, you know, your big hometown show, you're going to be burnt out and tired. You know what I mean? Like, put that shit, like, 
two weeks later or whatever. So you have time to chill and, and rehearse leading up to it and do some different stuff for it and make it special, you know? So those hometown shows are special. You know, we used to do Halloween every year where we do a different artist for Halloween um, just to pay tribute and to really like learn the music of these artists that we respected. And that became a real um, connection to the Colorado community because people are like, oh, this is the show every year is happening, you yeah. know, and they're so excited about it. It just helped build that, that, that connection and community with Colorado and us being a Colorado band. So that was that's always been huge for us, um, and that I don't think we'd be where we are right now if it weren't for those shows. That's great. Now, going backwards just a little bit, you're talking about you know managing your energy um, during the tour so that you have your your big uh, show on uh, on full fully charged batteries, as you said. Yeah. So you know working um, in the music industry for so long, you know you clearly know how to uh, continue continue making music decade after decade. Oh, yeah. And that's awesome, you know, and, and not too many uh, people can really stay with a single act for so long. Oh, yeah. And, you know, what, what would you uh, attribute your ability to continually evolve the band, but yet still keep the soul of it intact? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think having the variety of, of music, um, you know, the, the music that we've played over the years has, has definitely kept it interesting. Even changing up the lineup has kept it interesting. So there hasn't been um, a sort of burnout factor. And we don't, we've, we've, sometimes we've toured a lot and sometimes we've not toured a lot. It's been very flexible. You know, which is important. And and where do you draw those lines? Like, when is it time to go for it for a month? And when is it time to just sit back and absorb? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. And it's really a group effort as far as making those decisions. Um, so, it, 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 you know, you can only sort of make that decision yourself, you know. But I think you can tell. It's like if you're, if you're spinning your wheels and it feels like... Um, things aren't moving forward, then yeah, take a break. But you don't have to be like, oh, it's falling apart. You know what I mean? You just take a break, you know, slow it down. It's fine. You know, there's music isn't going anywhere. I think that if you look at it like goal oriented and we have to be here by this time or making this much money by this time, then yeah, you, you might end up throwing in the towel when it doesn't reach those goals. But it's good to have a vision. But you don't, the vision is the most important part, not the end game. You don't have to like, get to where your vision you might have seen in your vision because that ends up becoming contrived you know and the vision might give you ideas and then it gives you inspiration and you start working on it but you're gonna it's gonna shift and change you know what i mean which is fine so you know i think that you know you just gotta feel it out you know and in the end it's it's the music that matters it's the creativity that matters if you're not being creative if you're just if you become a cover band of yourself, then, you know, fuck it. Change it up, you know what I mean? Which is fine. I mean, we've, we've knocked it down to like 20 shows a year at one point, you know. I don't, you know, it's like if, if we just did like two dozen shows the next year, but they're all really good shows, it's like, okay. 
every show is going to be different and it's going to be cool and it's going to be fun. And maybe in, in between those shows, we're going to write music. You know, so there's always something to do. Being creative is the most important part. You know, and even if we had spent less time uh, playing as a band, it would give us time to do side project stuff. And then when we did side project stuff, we'd bring it back to the band and then we'd have more energy and enthusiasm for what we're doing as a band. Or I might, I've been to Cuba twice to study bata drumming. That to me was really inspirational at the time to where I wanted to go musically with the motet. So like not playing at all, you know, you know as far as, you know, the motet or some other side project goes, but doing something else musically, that all leads to a positive end, you know? So I, I think that, you know, it's more about, it's not what you do, it's what you don't do. It's like, don't, you know, don't spin your wheels. Don't, don't, you know, push yourself to try so hard to do something that's like, it's taking away from your creative energy. You know, that's the main thing. So it, there's no way to predict, there's no formula, but, you know, it's like, you know, as, as like, a, as a person who wants to stay healthy, you got to listen to your body, you know, similar thing with the dynamic of a band, you know. Absolutely. Now, why was it important for you to travel to Cuba to study bata drums as opposed uh, to study it from afar or try and take a lesson here in Colorado? Oh, well, you know, that particular style of music is, is very cultural. It's not just about the patterns and the parts. I mean, that stuff's all amazing. It's an incredible language. Bata is the music of Santeria. But that's a religious music of Cuba. And so it goes in tandem with the ceremony. So if you really want to feel and understand what Bata drumming is all about, um, you want to be a part of ceremony, you know, and see what the ceremony is about. So going there and being a part of, you know, Santeria ceremonies really made a huge difference and then also being in havana and being surrounded by that culture then studying with our teacher down there really made the whole thing uh you know easier to absorb so uh it's it's the sort of thing where you can't explain until you go but but cuba is such a petri dish of culture when you get down there you realize that you know I mean, music goes so much deeper there than it does in the States. It's not like just a party thing, you know? People love to drink rum and go to rumbas, but at the same time, it's like music becomes this um, spiritual thing, you know, that's beyond entertainment. So it's a really, it's a, it's a game changer when you become part of that. Are there any other cultures over the years that have inspired you musically? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, most African-based music, man, it's like, I love all that, you know, the um, Brazilian music, and the sambas, batucada, uh, African music, West African drum and dance, you know, we used to get into a lot of that stuff, all the doon-doon parts, how it transcribes to the drum set, um, Afrobeat, you know, Fela's music, been a huge influence on me. I love that stuff and you know I've studied it and played it a bunch and we had a Fela cover band for a while you know um, so really it's it's the African you know being a drummer it's the African music that gets me excited in the, the African diaspora you know wherever it ended up in America or in the 
West Indies, you know, in the Caribbean. All that really has, has made a huge impact on me. It's like, you know, that's what one of the threads in the motet. It's drummer's music. Even though now we're more song-oriented and, and funk is like our, our thing, especially, you know, funk of the late 70s and early 80s, uh, that's really our vibe. And it's way more song-oriented than it used to be, but it's still drummer's music, you know. Now, when you're playing live, are you running any software back there behind the kit? No, I used to. Yeah, I used to. We were messing around a little bit. We used to, um, <clears throat> let's see, like uh, probably 2005, um, our horn player back then was Dominic Lolly, who's now uh, the lead guy in Big Gigantic. Uh, and we all got laptops around the same time. And um, and we were just like messing around with it, you know. And I remember Dom was like, "Check this out," you know. And he'd throw some tracks at us, and we ended up doing a um, doing a little side project because Motet was slowing down a bunch at that time. And we just called it the Motet Trio because it was cheaper to tour as a trio. And it was me and Joey and Dom, and um, and we go around. And Joey had a bunch of songs. Uh, that he had tracks he had worked up that ended up becoming the tracks for a, another side project we have called Juno What. And that's Joey's electro funk thing. Um, I was messing around with some stuff, and then Dom uh, was was running tracks that ended up, you know, being the beginnings of Big Gigantic. But I remember at the end of one of the shows, he was playing tracks, and the audience was going nuts. And I was like, dude, this is pretty good, man. You might want to check this out. <laughs> explore this little yeah, You further. might want to explore this a little further, yeah. Nice. But I mean, yeah, yeah, he was like, you know, and back then we were all broke as fuck, you know, and, you know, he was eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches on the bus because he couldn't afford to go out and get, you know, food with the rest of us. And, uh, and he, you know, he'd stay on the bus working on his laptop, working up tracks, and now, now he's crushing it. So, yeah, that was the beginnings of, of us using electronics with our sound and I used it with Motet for probably uh, six years and then um, made two records, Instrumental Descent and um, Dig Deep. Both had, you know, doing laptop loops and that sort of thing, messing around with the kind of EDM vibe. Uh, but eventually it was just like, you know, just pain in the ass touring with a laptop. It's just so much easier to play live, you know. No clicks. No, yeah, we don't need no that alignment. stuff, you know. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll mess with the click live just to set the tempo straight, but um, but no, we don't we don't run any tracks. We're just I like it a lot better. It's it's improved our ability in the studio, you know, to go in and and not have any crutches, just go in and try and play our music live as possible in the studio and be efficient, you know. So when you're playing a live show, like bring me back to to your first Red Rocks set. You know, were there were you super nervous? Um, was it natural? Were you expecting uh, to be there? <laughs> well, that one of the first ones well, we opened up for Umphreys, and you know, just an opening set. So it was like during the day. It wasn't nah, because we're in Colorado, man. It's like all our friends. The first like thirty rows, like everyone we know. You know, it's actually. It's, you know, it's funny, you go to Red Rocks and it feels like this, this such a, um, <clears throat> when you're in the stands, it feels like such an epic venue. And then you're on stage and it feels kind of intimate. 
because it's so steep and you got the rocks there kind of, you know, pulling everything in, it, it doesn't feel that intimidating. And then the second year we played, uh, we, we played with um, lettuce and this storm came through that just crushed the place, like literally lightning everywhere, waterfalls coming down the rocks and the stairs, people hiding under trees. You know what I mean? Like the girls all were dressed up coming in and it was just when they came back, it was just like makeup everywhere and like everything soaked. I mean, it was crazy. And they cleared the whole place out. Everyone had to leave. And then, um, and then they let everyone back in and the whole place filled right back up. There was like 10,000 people there. And, but I think because of that storm, it kind of like knocked us off of our sort of, you know, being nervous. We were just like, oh, okay, this is going to work. This show is actually going to happen. So we threw down. It was a great show. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell me about just when you're performing live, mentally uh, preparing yourself. And at the same time, you know, being the drummer, you are the foundation of the rhythm. But do you get to kind of sit back and listen to to the vocals or or are you uh, so focused on your rhythm that you kind of yeah pull yourself away from I mean, you listen to listening everybody. too much. No, you, you, it's it's a balance for sure. You know, you, you got to like hear and listen to everybody for sure, especially in the improv sections. Um, mostly I listen to Garrett, my bass player, you know, that he's the main one I want to hear. We have in-ears now and we have an in-ear system where we can control our mix just from our iPads, which is a game changer for us. Um, so now I, we can hear everything a lot better. So everybody's got the perfect mix. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no sitting back, not in this band. <laughs> There's no, like, I know, I see some bands and it's like, wow, that drummer's got it easy, man. Like, you just feel like you can kind of go through the motions and it's pretty chill. And, but our music's not like that. Like, our music is, I feel like, especially because I feel like I'm trying, I almost have to stop trying so much because I have so many ideas and I have so many things I'm working on at home. And I bring it to the stage and sometimes it can get distracting if I'm trying too many ideas. Um, but you know, for me, it's, it's constant. When I go off stage, I want to be sweating. You know, I want to feel like I have just worked out. I want to feel like I'm a different person than I was when I walked up, you know, which has to happen. I kind of actually, when I first start a show, if I'm not quite warmed up, I have to take it easy and, and let my, let myself warm up without having to push too hard. But by the end, I want to be able to push as hard as you know, I can and um, and feel like physically going Let's talk about one of your tracks, That Dream. Yeah. First of all, nasty drum intro. Oh, sick. I mean, throughout the whole thing. But, yeah. Um, talk to me about it. I don't have the vocabulary to describe the rhythm that you're playing. Can you can you describe for the listener a little bit? Um, shit. I don't know, man. Kind of. Yeah. 
don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, I try to syncopate it a little bit, mix it up, and not just have it be a backbeat thing to to make it more interesting. Sometimes when you do a 16th note funk groove, you know, Garibaldi style, Mike Clark style, you have the um, you have the leeway to to mix up the backbeat so it's not just two and four. Tell me about how you guys created it, how you envision the drums. You talk about not being on two and four. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think I, I was messing around with the funky drummer idea, the James Brown groove. Um, and so, you know, Jalbert, our guitar player, just he gave us a demo, and he had some just random loop going. And so basically what happens is we'll send out demos to each other um, for most of this stuff. I can tell you about how I, I brought a song in as well but for a lot of the times the guys will send a demo and we'll listen to it at home and i'll i'll play along to it and sometimes i'll get the guys to send me the tracks without the drums and then i'll come up with the part but just to be as efficient as possible if we can do that kind of homework then we walk into the studio we try and write the song the basic groove of the song as a quartet before we get the vocals and the horns involved that way it's more focused rehearsal so we'll work on the tune i'll record it We'll work on whatever groove we've got going on. I'll record it and then send it out to the guys and then we'll sit at home and see if it works, what feels good, what doesn't. If we need to, we'll go back in and, and work on it more and try and just to get it to feel good. You know what I mean? It has to feel good. There's, you know, I tell these guys that like, there's no sense in, in playing a song that we can't play live you know, on a record. I don't want to work on a song for a record that we can't play live, you know? And if we're going to play it live, it has to feel good, you know? I don't want to play a song live that I'm up there just being like, Ugh, I hate this part. You know what I mean? I want to be like, yeah, this, this shit is fun. And it's fun for me to play, and it's got to feel like me. You know what I mean? I can't feel like I'm imitating somebody else. It's got to feel like me. So I spent a decent amount of time on that groove just trying to come up with something different that felt good for me. And I'm still working on it, to be honest with you. something in the studio and it feels feels good and you got it nailed and then you take it live and it's like oh you gotta change it up a little bit the live experience is a little bit different you might need to change the tempo a little bit 
you could definitely change the arrangement of the song a little bit, make it work for the live experience. You know, sometimes you're playing harder live, so you got to change the way it feels, you know, just in your hands, the sticks hitting the drums. You know, you have the luxury in the studio of playing a little quieter and it can still be, you know, effective. But live, sometimes that doesn't work. And also the drums are different. You know, my live kit is different than my studio kit. So that ends up affecting how I play. So even with that song, it's taken me a bit to figure out how to play it live and make it feel good. Um, yeah. Great. Now, how do you self-reflect when you're, when you're up on stage playing, you know, you're saying, oh, I might be playing too loud or too hard. You know, how, uh, how do you find that balance? Man, I, I, um, lately I've been recording every show from behind the drum set. I'll set up my Zoom behind the drum set, and which means I can just hear the drums and the bass and a little bit of guitar from where and, it's And you're using situated. Uh, mics yeah. on the Zoom? Yeah, I've got the little capsule I put on there. And man, that's a good one because it's, it's very stark rendering of your performance. There's and it's no, right behind you, so you get the same picture that you're yeah listening to yeah, as yeah. you play. Yeah, it's great, man. And it really, you hear every nuance, you hear every like push and pull that you may or may not want to be there, you know, so, and, and the dynamic thing too. So listening back in some ways is the only way to know, <clears throat> you know, what's working dynamically sometimes i can be into it and, and you know playing hard and be excited and being like yeah this is killer and of course you know you can't always tell from the audience because they might just be into it regardless but then i'll listen back and be like oh god i'm overplaying you know i'm, I'm playing way too hard on my ride symbol playing way too loud on my hats or, you know what i mean like something's not working like dynamically so um you know doing that recording myself i would recommend that to every drummer you know I, I would do it at home when i'm practicing but you know, i only have so much time to listen back so when i'm at home shedding I, I just work with the click and try and like hear what i'm doing you know when i'm practicing at home as much as possible in the moment but um yeah live it's great man just putting putting that zoom behind me and then listening back sometimes i'll go on a bike ride and just listen to the, the track of you know the weekend show and see like how things were feeling. That's, that's great advice. I think it's super important to listen back to yourself. Yeah. Probably no matter what you play. If you play guitar, yeah, you, vocals, you know, you could do yeah. the same thing. You know, listen to yourself, figure it's out hard, those nuances. Yeah. It's hard. Like, it's it's a, especially in that format where it's it's very dry and you're you're up front. You know what I mean? It's like it can be painful. You know, like, you don't always want to do that. You're like ah. Sometimes I'm not in the mood to listen back to myself. I'm like, oh, I don't want to like get depressed right now. But you know, it's good to kick your own ass like that. And once you do it enough, you start to know your own playing enough to where it's like you don't get surprises. You know, I used to be like, didn't listen to myself at all, and then I'd listen to myself every now and then and be like, ugh, that doesn't sound anything like I remember it. You know, and it's true that you don't. It's like listening to your podcast, your own voice. You know, if you don't listen, the first time you listen back to yourself, you're like, oh, I sound like that. Um, yeah. um, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's like that. If you do it enough, then it, it takes away that shock. And then you can kind of address the problems without being afraid of it and without being reactive and, 
you know, just like in denial, you know what I mean? You can just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I, I do that all the time. I always rush that fill, you know what I mean? And you're not surprised by it. You're like, okay, how can I fix it? And then when you do hear it better, then you're like, oh, it's better now because I worked on it this way because I changed this. You know what I mean? Like you can start to see yourself improve because of certain actions you take and you're noticing it. You know, and then maybe it gets to a point where you don't have to listen back so much because you, you're like, yeah, that's what I sound like. I know what I was going to sound you, you recognize it more in the moment. You know what I mean? Which is, which is kind of important to, to recognize the, the flaws that might be happening in the moment as opposed to needing to listen back. But, it's a, yeah, it's a great tool, man. Great. And just for anybody listening out there who might not be familiar with the Motet, where can everybody find your music? Uh, Spotify. If you go to Spotify, we have a Bandcamp, you know, the Motet on Bandcamp. You can download our tracks there, but if you go on Spotify and look up the Motet, you're going to find all of our music. Um, we have a YouTube channel and then themotet.natter.com, and you can get to our website and have, you can find access to all that there. Great. And is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners, with our audience, with the world at large? Um, yeah, yeah, we got a new record coming out. All right. Yeah, the new album's coming out in January. Any uh, teaser for the name? <clears throat> Well, it's called Death or Devotion. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's named after one of the songs. Um, but we're pretty proud of it. It's, it's great. We recorded the whole thing here in Colorado. Um, and we, we've got great sounds, and we feel really good about the material. This is the first album that our singer, Lyle, has co-written with us from beginning to end. So it feels really cohesive for the band. Um, and, uh, and we're already playing all the songs live. And they've been doing really well. Like audience response wasn't great, so we know that they're gonna translate, you know, from the record to the stage, and that the songs are—they're not gonna be throwaways, which is nice. You know, it's a good feeling. And like you said, we've released, you know, that dream. We released a song called uh, "Compatible." Oh no, that one hasn't come out yet. We released a song called "Supernova." Yeah. We released a song called What You Gonna Bring, and we released a song called um, Get It Right. So there's four songs that, that have come out early, and then Compatible is coming out in January. And then the whole record's coming out at the end of January. And are some of those songs going to be in that record? All the songs are in that record. Those okay. are all like, you know, pre-release tunes, which you can do nowadays. It's kind of nice. You can release singles before you put the album out, you know, kind of like... It's good actually have people know the music before you do your CD release show or whatever, you know, like we've got the Red Rock show coming up. I guess we didn't mention that. Yeah. Uh, July 12th, it's our next Red Rock show with Galactic and Moon Hooch. Um, but it's, it's going to be a great feeling to know we can go into that show and play all those songs and people are going to know the songs. Yeah. That's great. And I think that's an interesting marketing tactic too of, uh, uh, breaking up the album into multiple releases yeah. and teasing it, getting some momentum going, pre-orders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, it's, man, it's a pain in the ass to, to make an album, 12 songs all at the same time, you know what I mean? Like, do it all at once, it's like, it's a lot of work, you know? So being able to stagger it and go in, record three songs, take some time off, play shows, release one or two songs go back in, that's what we did for this record, you know, over the course of almost two years from beginning to end. Um, 
but it, it you know which is a little long for me i'd like to knock it out quicker than that but at the same time you it, there's a little more focus on each song as opposed to like you get overwhelmed trying to do 12 songs at once you know and i think it's a lot for the audience too to you get all 12 songs you know downloaded at the same time it's like oh you know it's it's, it's nice to get a tune here and there and you can kind of like get into a song without having to think about the next one that's interesting and where did you guys record this latest album oh it's uh, Scan Hope Sound down okay in Inglewood yeah great well thank you so much Dave yeah, for taking the time to talk yeah, with Mike. me appreciate it dude appreciate you yeah thanks good stuff yeah listening to the Frio Music Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, consider donating to our patron program. You can learn more about our patron program at friomusic.com forward slash support. Even $1 a month can help us pay the bills and create more quality content for you. If you enjoyed what you heard or gained any tiny nuggets of wisdom from the show, please leave a comment and rating on your preferred podcast platform. Please take a minute to rate the podcast now. Your ratings really do make a huge impact on search results and can help other people find the show and the music that we feature. If you really love the podcast and don't want to miss an episode, you can subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released by visiting freomusic.com forward slash P. Or if you really want to type it all out, freomusic.com forward slash podcast. That's F-R-E-I-O-M-U-S-I-C dot com forward slash p if you know somebody who might enjoy the content of this podcast please share it with them your contributions and support make this podcast possible until next time stay tuned